So many people never see themselves represented in the classroom. PhD programs offer little, if any, pedagogy training, let alone having to do with intersectionality or decoloniality. We live in a time where old classroom conventions and ways of thought are proving to be radically insufficient. New approaches are desperately needed. Hello, this is Justin. And this is Ashley. Welcome to Pedagogies for Peace, intersectional and decolonial teaching podcast. An audio series that foregrounds critical pedagogies with a focus on intersectionality and decoloniality. We come from varied backgrounds. From political science, feminist international relations, native studies, critical media studies, American studies, and ethnic studies. From philosophy, peace studies, gender studies, and political theory. To bring you insights from thought leaders and offer glimpses of what could be. From transformations inside the classroom to rethinking what is possible. Welcome, everyone. Today's guest on the podcast is William Paris, who is currently the Frank B. Weeks Visiting Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Wesleyan University. He's also an associate editor for the journal Critical Philosophy of Race. His research focuses on the history of African-American philosophy, 20th century continental philosophy, and political philosophy. He's published on Franz Fanon, Sylvia Winter, and is currently working on a book project called Looking for Tomorrow and Yesterday, Black Critical Theory and the Epistemology of Utopia. Hi, Will. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. So I was wondering if you could just start by talking to us a little bit about your pedagogy and your pedagogical approach. How would you describe what it is that you do in the classroom or the perspective from which you you do it? Yeah, that's a perfectly you know good way to put it. You know, the way that I think about my teaching is I do think of myself as an embodied teacher. You know, I cannot hide from my students that I I am black, I am a black man. And so even when we're reading, say, you know, uh, French thinkers in the 20th century continental tradition, I always want them to know that I am coming at these questions from a particular space, a particular understanding. So I always want them to bring not just the their abstract thoughts, but I want them to feel comfortable of, you know, to take a stand from the position in which these texts hit them. So for me, pedagogy is all about the way I think about it, it's like I'm trying to involve them into in the music that we're making. I am not simply the composer. I think of it more as jazz. So whatever instruments they happen to bring that day, I work to attune myself to them and where they are at in their experiences. So for me, it's just it's just as much about me transmitting material to them, but them learning what it is that they truly think together. Can, can you give us some examples of how you do that in that classroom? Yeah. So one example uh, of how I do this is, you know, I ask a lot of questions. So, you know, I'll interrupt myself while lecturing. You know, I'll do things like checking and saying, does that make sense? Or my favorite that I'm trying out, I realize, you know, sometimes students aren't used to being asked this. I'll ask them, can you translate what we just talked about into your own words? So in one of my classes, my intro to existentialism class, we're reading um, Franz Fanon's The Lived Experience of the Black Man. And so it would be very easy for them to simply just talk about Fanon as this abstract object. But I'll stop at a line. One of the important lines I think in there is when he critiques Sartre for, you know, basically laying out how the negritude movement is going to, you know, sublate itself into the broader class movement. And Fanon will say, I needed not to know. 
And I asked them, what does that mean to you? Why would it be important to need not know, you know the future of your actions, what you're engaging in your projects? And I try to say, don't just talk to me as if you are a phenom. Tell me from your own experiences when you needed not to know. And they came up with things like, well, when I'm starting out on a new project, it doesn't feel great when someone comes and says, oh yeah, I used to do that when I was younger. You'll grow out of it, don't worry. And so in that way, I trained them not to, you know, to put it rather crudely, I don't want them to simply repeat back to me what the text says. I want them to sort of disinter, you know, the, the very living meaning of the text, how it harmonizes with them so that they can use their own words, their own language, and hopefully that translates into their writing as well. Yeah, I like that a lot. I'm wondering, you know, I'm teaching online this semester, and I know that you're online this semester. And I was wondering if you could talk about how how your process of tuning to students has changed or shifted or been interrupted by being online. I know that I find it so much easier to like feel out where my students are at when I'm in a room with them. So yeah, I'm wondering what you think about it in this new conjuncture. In all honesty, it is much more difficult. It, it made me, you know, also critically reflect my pedagogical habits. Where, you know, when you're in the room with them, I'm also reading their body language, you know, and so your body language doesn't always tell you what to think. So sometimes they're thinking, sometimes they're bored, and that's when I know, like, okay, try time to switch up the tempo. And so online, I realize, you know, one. I don't have the same sense, you know, the sort of embodied sensibility of what's going on. And so I try to, you know, vary the pitch of my voice more, speed up, slow down, to try to keep them engaged so it doesn't turn into literally this flat experience looking at a computer. And you have to deal with the fact that, you know, sometimes students for reasons of um, bandwidth or what have you can't have their cameras on. And so it takes a little more trust that you know, you're, you're communicating things. And so in that way, it makes me want to open the classroom up more, keep asking more questions, say, did that make sense? How was that? And I, I strange, I get such a jolt seeing the thumbs up for the, from the students whose cameras aren't on, to be like, okay, so you're still here with me. And other ways, Honestly, it's easier to do some group work when it's just about slotting people in the breakout rooms rather than, all right, I want to mix up the people who are constantly talking to one another, moving the desks around. So in that way, that's slightly you know, a, a pro, but it's made me lean less on lecturing and more about how can we do discussion, especially because they're missing that, that community that is usually built when they're in the classroom together. No, you... Um... You mentioned Franz Fanon, and we know that Fanon really offers strong critiques towards power. And yet many of us were finding ourselves in that same location of power in the classroom, at the university. Maybe you could talk a bit about, and I know your research kind of looks at the future tomorrow. Maybe you can think about or you can share with us your perspective on how you view the classroom as sort of this space that be that can contest power, and also maybe how the current shifts and changes in the world over the last six, seven, eight months kind of transforms our mandate as people that stand in power. So I was teaching online when the George Floyd protest broke out. I was teaching um, an African-American political thought class in Intro to Africana. 
class. And I made a decision. I'm not going to pretend that what's happening out in the world isn't happening. But we're reading. So in both those classes, we were reading 19th century thinkers. And so what I wanted them to do was start to make the connections between, sure, it's a different historical context, but how have things carried on from, say, 100 years ago? So part of what I want to accomplish in the classroom is, again, it, you know, it's not to me about them memorizing specific arguments. I want to know that they can connect history to the present in really dynamic ways, that they can be reading Frederick Douglass or Marcus Garvey and then look at what's happening and say, so what does that mean for the national framework of the United States? What does that mean for the social organization of their lives? And so the mandate I see in the classroom is it's not about didacticism. I never want to tell them what to think, one, because if you do that, it doesn't actually stick. You know, they'll say what they think that you want them to say and move on. Two, I think we have to acknowledge that this is a different contemporary moment where a lot of these young students at least know what they, they know what they think they're supposed to say. So they know the, you know, the terminology they're supposed to use in order to sort of, um, I guess the, the sort of epithet of it is now is to be woke. And so these types of discussions about race and power, instead of being difficult experiments with analyses, are approached almost like a, a padlock where you have to line up the tumblers in order to unlock what you're supposed to do. So I also see the mandate of challenging their habitual ways of speaking and thinking, which means creating a space where they can actually experiment what's in their heads. So one, they're probably afraid of, you know, am I going to be called a racist? So partially I want to disrupt what that their thought that racism is, this thing is carried on one's head, rather than about the social arrangements and the practices from those arrangements in how we live. And so I use Fanon to say, you think that this is just about Fanon's individual experience, but he's trying to say that when society is arranged, you know, um, in a system of colonialism or society is arranged in a system of hierarchy, these types of practices will follow in order to make sense of that world. And so I want them to reflect on what is the arrangement of their lives. Why, how, why are there certain things that they've taken for granted? And so when the George Floyd protest broke out, I want them to ask, so what is actually happening here? What, what feels new? What you know, feels very old? And how can we bring that together in order to understand a different um, mode of agency and critical thinking? And usually I want them to think of agency not as individual responsibility, but as collective work a collective elaboration of what the world could be. Yeah, I, I really like that idea about the collective elaboration. And I think, you know, in my own experience teaching, I often encounter this, you know, like students' understanding of what the correct positions to have on many contemporary social issues is or the correct language to learn, like language to use in order to refer to themselves or people or their positions. Of course, everything is socially constructed or, or whatever. They're all and, in on that, which is wild. There was a long time where that was a really hard battle to fight. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> yeah. But sometimes also I find that like the surface level facility with the vocabulary you know, is in a strange way an impediment to getting at the meat of what those concepts really mean or really refer to or as I'm wondering how you like, like when you encounter this in the classroom, how do you push them beyond, you know, the like 
yes, race is a social construction, and of course, intersectionality, and people are the you know, the experts on their own experience. Like, how do you push them beyond some of that surface level uptake of wokeness? So one strategy that I, you know, again, you know, I'm talking about what's particular to me. So I, I don't want to be like, yo, this is my mandate for how all teachers should be carried out. Humor. So I will always, you know, especially when we start reading something having to do with race or injustice, I'll open the joke saying, yes, yes, yes. We all know racism is bad unless one of you wants to try to defend that position. And so I kind of want them to see, you know, in that joke that it's a bit of a cliche that, you know, you're not telling me something, you're not arguing for anything, you're saying something that amounts to a sort of a moralistic uh, lesson. And sure, the lesson is great, but I assume we start there. And so once I take that off the table, because, you know, as I said, you know, like when teaching figures like Fanon or um, Douglas or Toni Morrison, you know, I don't want them simply to write papers where they tell me over and over again that they know racism is bad. Because one, that doesn't tell me that they know how racism functions, what it is, what it's doing. And two, it doesn't tell me what they mean by bad. Do they simply mean something like, you know, it's humiliating? Or do they mean that it's violent? Or do they mean that it stifles creativity? There are different ways to cash that out, but when you stop there, you don't do it. And so, you know, the, the next thing I do to kind of, you know, break them from that, you know, uh, the conceptual deadlock is I'll ask them, so what do you mean by that? You know, so, well, how do you understand racism? Or how do you understand social construction? And especially when it comes to when they're like, you know, people are authorities on their own experiences. You know, like I, I was just teaching um, lived experience from France to France. That's why I keep going back to it, you know, in my head right now is I caution them. And I do this also when I teach uh, um, Sadia Hartman's new book, Wayward Lives. To, I caution them against thinking that experience is something that is immediately accessible to somebody. As if like every Black person is walking around with um, the same immediate apprehension of what's happening to them, rather than it being the effect of reflection, work, and you know, um, collaboration with the community to understand what's happening. So the line in lived experience I, I always point them to is, you might think that he's just giving you like, you know, which is a strange thing to think, it's a really sort of poetic text. I doubt he was thinking all these things as soon as these things were happening to him. But you know, he begins the text at the end of like the third paragraph, here are the pieces put back together by another me. And so then I want them to see that to be the author of one's own experience is not something as quote unquote simple as everyone immediately knows, but there is work and a structure to do to this. And so when uh, they're reading Front Sunan or anything like that, I want them to listen. So what's the structure at play? What choices are being made and what are they deriving from this experience? Because then you get insight into what the language I keep coming back to, the social arrangement of our lives. And I find that you know, everyone is an author of their own experiences. Also, sometimes I can see sometimes in my students, it's an implicit way of saying, but how is this philosophy? They're simply reporting back to us what's going on. And so it's so important for me to see the, the dialectical construction of experience, the, the role of self-consciousness, of you know, putting this together to make sense of what is something that's actually really hard to make sense of, that you know, being, you know, a person of color, being black, what have you, you know, it's not as if you immediately understand the wrongs of the world. Often many of us think we belong in the world until something shocks us out of it. And how do you make sense of that shock? 
And that's what I want them to see, that many of us don't simply fit cleanly into the world. It takes reflection. It takes, you know, the invention of concepts to capture it. But if those concepts are simply flat, then you miss all of that critical work. Yeah. I love that idea of the the dialectic construction of experience. And it seems like you're really, uh, not only within yourself, but also with your students, making sure that they understand that reflection, right? And sort of in a community, uh, reflection is the way to really understand and make sense of experiences. But I'm, you know, like that type of teaching, I know for sure I was not trained in that way when I was doing my graduate work. Right, so I'm really curious. You have this great way of, of of using humor and relating and looking and bringing in student experiences. Where did you develop that from in relationship to constructing your own pedagogy? Are there particular texts or experiences that helped you inform that construction? So I had to come to this from a bit off the beaten path, you know. So in grad school. I mean, we had a teaching pro seminar, but I, I'm going to be honest, and this is no shade to what Penn State you know, was, was, was giving us, but you know, we did not, I felt like I did not have the tools of, so how do I approach these students as individuals rather than a mass of people who happen to be sitting in this room with me? Exactly, exactly. And so I, you know, partially how I was trained was, you know, have all of your notes, write your lectures beforehand, and then you stick with them so that you know that you'll never make a mistake, you know, in terms of like, you'll come to something. And now that I've done this a while, this still happens to me. Well, I'll be like, I'm not quite sure where I was going with that line. Sorry, guys. And so I tried just reading out lectures to them, you know, just saying, and then this happens, and then this happens. And if any of you have ever been in a room of bored people, boy, you feel it in your bones. And so I just had to say to myself, this isn't working. Why isn't this working? And it's because I felt like I was not connected to them in any way. And what was holding me back was I didn't want to, you know, uh, risk looking like a fool to them. You know, I didn't know if I could risk myself with them. And so I started trying it. You know, so the example I use of jazz is really because I think about a lot of what I do is improvisation. But the trick with jazz is no jazz musician that does that type of music doesn't practice. It's not like they just get on stage cold and do it. And so I do a lot of preparation, but I also prepare myself to be unprepared by what they're going to bring, what they're going to say. And so I you know the kind of way I like, I was teaching Kierkegaard to my intro to existentialism class is that Kierkegaard has a, a sort of ethics of error and sickness unto death where he's like, you have to be willing to risk something if you're going to find out who you are. You have to be willing, he talks about how it's easier not to speak than to speak because when you speak, people can respond to you and you know, say, oh, that's what you really think? And so they need to see that I'm willing to put myself out there and I will do things, even if I'm pretty sure about this reading of the text, I'll say things like, okay, well, here's my interpretation. Let me try this out. Because I think it's important that they don't see the teacher as, at least for me, this is what works for me, you know, as a complete authority figure who has already mapped everything out and they're simply just trying to align themselves with me. And so I just learned that it's remarkable when you give them a little space how much you know, they, you know, at least a majority of them want to buy in. And a lot of them, I think they don't have the experience of professors that want to give them space to try out their ideas. They probably have experience with professors who just lecture at them. So a lot of it was trial and error for me to figure out what worked for me. I was not funny at all when I first started teaching. There was no humor. And anyone who knows me personally is probably shocked by that. 
And then I started realizing, oh, sometimes I can actually get a point across with like a really incisive mm. joke better than if I had just been like in step A, step B, step C. Of course, I get them to reflect on the joke. And sometimes I'll do, why was that funny? Why did you laugh? Explain it to me. And now we're building arguments. And you know, I really do think that there is a real place for humor, even in anti-racist pedagogy, because mm-hmm. sometimes people need to like relax a little bit. One, sometimes you will get students saying things out of pocket, but my approach is I'd rather them get that out of their heads and so that we can question and push rather than them keeping in their head and just what, what they're offering is, I know this is what I'm supposed to say and I know this isn't about me, all of that. Yeah. I really love this idea about taking risks in the classroom in ways that may very well have unintended consequences or like might might get away from you a little bit. I'm wondering if like in those moments when wheels come off the wagon or jokes don't land, like how explicit are you with your students about what you're doing pedagogically in that mm-hmm. moment? Do you talk to them about like, okay, let's let's unpack this or like do you talk to them about why you're doing what you're doing. Absolutely. So, you know, the usually the way I begin the class and, you know, again, it's part of the, it's part of the joke. They, they don't always know it's a joke, but I, usually the first class I will say, and by the way, you know, I will always lie to you. So never think any position I say is actually my position. And that's because I want to like shock them out of thinking. So whatever he says, I just have to say it back to him. And then I get an A. The joke is I never do lie to them. Like, you know, I will always tell them, you know, I'm glad you brought up when a joke falls flat. Oh boy. I will like, you know, call it out and say, okay, so that didn't work. Why didn't that work? You know, what were we missing here? And I'm I'm okay being sometimes self-deprecating, being like, oh yeah, I could have worked on the delivery, right? And so then they laugh at that. And then I say, so what I was trying to communicate is this. And so I don't actually want to keep secrets from them. I think, you know, again, just from my personal style, I think the idea of the uh, authority teacher who's who's keeping the cards close to the vest who's keeping the students out of the light so that they continue to need the teacher, that doesn't work for me. And so when I'm doing something with them, I'm never trying to trick them. You know, I will tell them, you know, whether I'm using a joke or if I say, so how would you translate that line? And sometimes you get the blank stares. And boy, I I still to this day feel the anxiety like, oh no, how am I going to do this? And I'll say, this is why I want you to translate the line this way. So one could think this, that, you know, um, if you need not to know, it's because a, a crucial part of the phenomenological experience of free will is that you yourself are doing it, that you're not a robot. And so I want you all to be able to express this because it will be able to actually tap into the core of how you go through life. And so I want them to see my methodology, you know, especially, you know, when I'm the way I structure syllabus. I think, honestly, if you talk to any of my students, I'm constantly doing things like saying, so I'm having you write a paper at this point because I want you to do X. I have you, this is more online stuff. I have you all do discussion posts and reading reflections before you hear my lecture because I want you all to already be practicing writing. I want you all to see that writing is a muscle and also that's material in the bank. 
We have to do your analysis papers. You can go to that. And so I never want them to think things are happening randomly, which is always the balance to try to strike between improvisation and structure. But I think that's when improvisation is amazing is so far as it's not that there's no structure, but that you start to see the sense in it. And I want them to see the sense in why we're doing what we're doing and that the syllabus is not just something I'm telling them to do. I want them to know there is a particular rhythm and sense to it so that they can feel purpose in why they're doing this assignment here or why I'm talking to them in this way and what have you. I just wanna say one last thing, you know, and maybe this is a rather banal point, but going through the syllabus for me is not just about making sure, I mean, we all have those jokes where we get like, you know, emails from students like it's on the syllabus. It's not just about, you know, making sure they don't come to you with questions of things they should have read, but that they see the syllabus as a whole, not as a um, you know, discrete parts of checkpoints they need to hit, but of what, you know, it communicates about the meaning of the class how these steps lock together and why. And I see no reason to keep that from the students. I want them to know why they're doing what they're doing and how they're learning. Because I think it's great if they can reflect on their own learning process as well. That makes sense. That makes sense. I like this idea of sort of having it all integrated where they're not just sort of checking off boxes or trying to get to a next checkpoint, but really seeing it as a whole. So one of the questions I have around that is thinking about educators who may not have great familiarity with intersectional or decolonial approaches to teaching, how would you speak to them in mm. thinking about how do you integrate some of your ideas without being too mechanical and still allowing for some of that rifting to happen? But what are some starting points that teachers can start, educators can start thinking about in what you're uh, suggesting? So I don't know if this is going to be controversial or not, but so the way that I, I'm teaching my intro to existentials in class, I have multiple um, African-American thinkers in there. So I have Toni Morrison, Franz Fanon, Richard Wright, Ralph Ellison. We're reading the, the, the yellow wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. I think it's a mistake if you, know, you are, let's put it new to this, say intersectional or decolonial thought, to simply just have um, a one section or one figure. And you know, usually at the end of the course or something like that, because that makes it into a token, into, okay, so we did all the normal stuff and now let's see how this other thing matches up with the normal stuff. If you really want to integrate it, then you can find continuity and discontinuity. So Richard Wright and Ralph Ellison are in a section on social alienation. Franz Fanon is on a section on death, despair, and living with others. Toni Morrison is in a section on the meaning of freedom. And so partially it's about normalizing them being there saying that they're already a part of the conversation. This is not something ad hoc where like an administrator told you time to diversify your syllabus because it also affects how you're going to teach it. You will not have, you know, you know gained what I'm using more sort of metaphorically, the rhythms of how to go with uh, these figures. And even if it's a bit uncomfortable, even if it's a bit jarring, at least in my experience, the students will be willing to go with you if they see that you're working with it as well, they're probably not gonna go with you if they sense that you're doing it to check off a box or if it's not malicious like that, and that's not even malicious, that's just sort of not thinking. If you, you're really uncomfortable with it and so you're, you um, kind of just like say, and yeah, and then they say this and then they say that. And I guess, you know, that's what that means rather than saying, okay, no, 
this is how we do philosophy or this is how we do critical thinking and all of this. So I would really suggest if you're going to do this, don't put it all on one thinker, one text, one figure, because also no single figure can bear that type of load. And if we're going to think about things beyond tokenization, beyond simply, if you have you know, one person of this, then that solves it, then we have to also reflect it in our syllabi and our pedagogical uh, strategies, which is, wow, how about you know, talking about race isn't something that's contrary to talking about these other things, but honestly, it is part of what it means to live together. It is a question of social alienation. It is bound up in the meaning of freedom. And so why would we be scared to say that? And again, with the students, often they will go with you. And not to be scared of them being like, wait, I thought we were going to read only Heidegger here. I don't know what students say in that. But, you know, you know that's my point. You encountering a lot of students who are like, why aren't, why aren't we reading more Heidegger? We need more. Yeah, they're, they're like, come on, I want Dasein. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think the, the last thing I will say about strategies, you know, is do not come to a text cold. If you know that it's outside your field, and I don't know if it's okay for me to give advice, but this is how I approach it when I'm teaching text outside of my um, AOS and all of that. Do research on them. Read a, a secondary source. By this, by this moment, it's out there and all of that. And so as much as I'm for experimentation, if you aren't willing to put in the same amount of work that you put in with the people that you know, you're more comfortable with, then you're not saying that you're up to the task of teaching this text. And so there are already other voices who have written on it that can give you some sort of you know, uh, guideposts to orient yourself. And so I am kind of critical of the idea, and I'll stick with Fanon because I think people think chapter five, the lived experience is a really easy thing to teach. It's not, it's really complicated. And so don't think, oh yeah, okay, we did some Sartre, we did some Husserl, I'll just throw Fanon in there and I'll read it the day before and I've got it. And so really like, you're gonna have to put in the work and do what you do whenever you encounter something you're not sure about, which is you do research. And that because and that's important because research and teaching is not disconnected for us. It, at least it shouldn't be. Yeah, this idea of like the kind of integration of what we do in the classroom and what we do as scholars and what we do also as like people in our capacity at the university in a broader sense, I think is something that we don't often talk about very much in academic practice. We tend to think about like, re, you know, teaching, research, service as these three disconnected areas of academic life. And I'm wondering if you could just say maybe by by way of like gesturing forward, like how your anti-racist pedagogy then comes back and affects your research and your service or your work at the university overall. I'll start with the question of, of my research. So for me, anti-racism is first and foremost because I focus mostly on, on, on black thinkers, that black people have something to say. That you know, they can be as theoretical, as structured as any other figure. Even someone like, you know, everyone knows I love James Baldwin. There is a structure there. Yes, it's beautiful words and all of that. And so partially the way that I approach it is, I want them to be able to speak. 
I want them to be legitimate sources of knowledge, not only legitimate in, in so far as it's like, oh, they happen to be saying this thing. And that kind of sounds like something Derrida said too. That's how we know that this is great. And so partially what I want to do is, you know, offer at least a relatively autonomous tradition that has its own codes and norms. That doesn't mean it's only constrained to them, but I don't see any problem in seeing Black people, Black historical philosophical thought as an independent source of wisdom that doesn't need to be authenticated by some a dominant institution of knowledge, that if only we can connect it to, to Hegel, then we know. There might be connections with Hegel because Black people historically have read widely. That is also not off the table. Two, there is, I would say, a politics to my research. My, my work on utopia is about understanding how do we reconstruct a society that seems to be really fatally critical right now. And I turn to Black people because a lot of Black people, you know, inheriting in some ways the experience of diaspora and enslavement, you know, strive for, dreamed of autonomous places in which they could determine their own existence, which means that they were taking frames of emancipation that weren't only the frame of the United States or the West or anything like that. Some did. Some did not. And so I looked at them as a source of not just inspiration, but an analysis of alternate organizations of our society. And I see that as anti-racist, not in simply the way of reminding people that racism is bad, we've already talked about that, but to say that other ways of living are possible. And that those other ways of living, even though much of my stuff focuses on history, they persist insofar as, you know, we still have um, cultural products that testify to them. So we have a recently um, a movie coming out about Fred Hampton and all of that. And, you know, Fred Hampton, like he was all about how do we build a different way of living together? And it had to do with education and, you know, being able to feed one another and understanding the ways our economic organizations circumscribes our life chances. And so I looked at them and say, oh, wow. They're speaking about their own experience, but they're also speaking about more general problematics. And so that resists the sort of idea of like only black thinkers can talk about quote unquote black things, whatever that means. But to say, no, there are general lessons we can learn about a more humane world. In my, in my service, I always want to be <laughs> reminding people that academia can be incredibly hostile to, you know, uh, Black people, people of color, uh, gender nonconforming people. I never want us to get so abstract as to think that these structures don't take a toll on one's psyche to get through all of this. And so I see in the, the places where I get to do service is one, uh, if I'm a place with graduate students, I want to be able to speak up for graduate students. I want to know what it is they're, they're going through, what their health insurance is like, where are they living, you know, all that type of stuff. And, you know, I get it, I'm one person, but I think those questions should always be there and not, you know, push to the background. And that's another way for us to, to learn and be reflective on the structures under which we're laboring. Well, thank you, William Paris, for sharing your thoughts it certainly resonated with me. I can certainly attest to some of the hostilities and challenges uh, that, that we find in the academy. But I also think, no doubt, you, you added to our ongoing conversation and you gave our listeners a lot to think about. So again, thank you for your time and thank you for your work. 
Thank you for having me. This was Thanks wonderful. so much, Will. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Take care. That was great. What are your thoughts? What do you think, Ashley? I loved it. I really found the idea of like teaching as partially about tuning, like like mm. tuning up to the students or like linking in with whatever frequency they're vibrating on in the moment. I know that sounds a bit woo woo, <laughs> but like, but there's something about that that really feels like, like part of what I'm doing in the classroom in the background of my brain, like what does their energy level look like? Where is their excitement and their energy going today? Like, are they, you know, flat on the floor because they're tired or are they like scrambling to understand something? And I feel like my teaching does change a lot in relationship to that frequency or energy level, but I'd never had a language like tuning to talk about it. That resonated with me too. I, I was at, uh, just last night, there was um, an orchestra event that was just outside on one of the greens on campus. And I remember seeing the the, the conductor just sort of moving around, using their hands. And, and, and I was thinking, oh, I would love to do that in a classroom space, sort of realizing that conceptually we do that, right? And to think about how jazz is improv, but you have to be on top of your own game. You can't just go there unprepared, which, which William had mentioned multiple times, definitely resonates with that analogy. I remember back in graduate school, I, I went to a performance by Wynton Marsalis, and I asked him, why jazz is so present in some of the, the spaces that are thinking around peace and mm. sort of harmony. And he said three things that I think resonate with what William was mentioning, which was jazz teaches you three lessons. One, it teaches you the solo, that you have a voice and that it should be heard on its own. But then it also teaches you that other people have voices as well. And when someone else is on a solo, you have to be quiet or even just make some small notes that supplement and amplify that voice. And then lastly, he said that the blues is sort of this representation of a, of a hope, hopefulness that's, that's based in reality, in harsh, oftentimes violent realities. Mm. And so I almost felt that that's what he was saying, that he knows his stuff and he'll give it to the students, but they also need to know that they have stuff that they come to the table with and that they need to share it when they're ready. Right. But then also tying the historical to the present really goes to show you that one, these systems of oppression that we're working against to dismantle have been there a long time. And mm. most likely they're going to continue being around for a long time. So he introduces this sort of like hopefulness, but a real lived hopefulness that's, that's based in hardship, that's based in reality. Uh, so yeah, I loved, like I loved that. Yeah, like, and the idea of, like, dissonance as being mm. productive or, like, I don't know, like, harmony or peace or, like, moving forward doesn't always have to be the prettiest sounding, you know, moment. There are moments of tension and dissonance in the classroom that are totally necessary to, you know, like, moving toward and testing out and, and being vulnerable to new ideas and, and like, that space of play that produces conflict and dissonance, I think is also like a really important way of thinking about what we're doing in the classroom. Oh yeah, for sure. I love how you bring up play and vulnerability because the other thing I attached to was um, how he was fine with telling jokes mm. and bringing humor to the table, right? It's like, if that's the type of person you are, you don't hear about using that in pedagogy training while you're in graduate school. 
and yet he plays around with it. And I love the idea, because I've always thought about it too, of, of, of bringing jokes into the classroom. And even if they fall short, which is what you asked, Ashley, what do you do? And I loved how he was turning everything into sort of this moment and this, this space of examination. So if a, if a joke falls short and no one laughs, clearly it fell short. You say that, but then also ask, well, why did it fall short? Mm. Right. And at the very least, you could even just have sort of a, a conversation about authority and power and transfer of knowledge and what's supposed to be associated with what. Because oftentimes, right, in the academy, humor is not supposed to be, and joyfulness is not always associated with deep analysis. And it should be, and it could be. And obviously, it also helps the material and the analysis resonate with people. Right? Totally. My actually, my dissertation advisor, Rick Lee, who's at DePaul University while I was writing my dissertation, was writing a book on on comedy and its relationship to mm. philosophy. And he is always a, a pedagogue who used a lot of humor in the classroom. It, and I think that's like, I learned a lot about being funny in the classroom and especially of using self-deprecating humor in the mm. classroom as a way to push on the power dynamic of the more traditional model or structure of education. But I, I was just thinking about the other day, I was trying to make a joke in one of my classes about The Matrix, like the film, The Matrix. Yeah. And this and this joke fell flat for an entirely ridiculous reason, which is that my students were so young, they had not seen The Matrix. Ah. And so there was, I also just like had this moment as I've been teaching now for about a decade, like the jokes that really landed 10 years ago and the pop culture references it have started not working anymore, but actually that's its own opportunity sometimes to like play with how old and out of touch, and, like, you know, and God, I'm such a millennial and these like, you know, <laughs> Gen Zers have no idea what I'm talking about. Yeah. I think it also very much connects to that notion that he was mentioning that, that, you know, how do we make spaces that are humane? I mean, I think we've had a lot of conversations about this, that the academy is not always humane and classrooms can be brutal. And, you know, if you have a, a professor who looks young, but is making jokes that are a little bit, you know, timed and dated, right, it's still humanizing. It still allows people to sort of put their guard down and see you as a whole person. And, and hopefully I would imagine it seems like it's the case that his strategy disarms, right, and allows him to have these meaningful connections with students. Yeah. I thought that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, I'd say, you know, one of my takeaways, I, I loved his response to uh, those folks who are just sort of coming to think about race and difference in their syllabus, where he was saying, like, first off, you know, I've seen it so many times. So first off, avoid just segmenting everything into one week, like you could have a, a feminist international relations week at the very end, or an indigenous political theory or political thought week at the very end. But then also just like small things where it's not even in terms of the larger syllabus, but just asking, well, what do you mean by that? Particularly when you hear those cliches or those hyperboles, which no one in popular discourse around race and difference ever asks that seemingly so simple of a question, which is, what do you mean when you say that? What do you mean by that? Right. And then the other thing that I loved, another follow-up question that you could use tomorrow in any of your classes is what about this feels new, but also what about this feels old? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like like in listening to Will say that, I feel like I often ask my students, like, what feels new? And I don't often ask them what feels old or what feels familiar. 
about texts and and I think there is something really valuable about that question. Like what feels longstanding and deeply rooted and familiar is also a way of connecting with students. It's a way of meeting them where they're at to use like organize you know, activist language. And I think that's often something that we don't, we're not taught to do very much as teachers, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, maybe that resonated with me because, because the current context, which we sort of find ourselves, which is, you know, we're part of a university that has strong religious traditions, strong supporting war fighting traditions, uh, and I think of Andrea Smith's The Pillars to White Supremacy mm-hmm. um, being capitalism, war fighting, and colonialism. Mm-hmm. And for sure, when you ask those questions about things that seem new, do any of these also feel old? Do you see these patterns that have you seen previously? And no doubt, since we're all entrenched in these structures of, of, of power, we start seeing some of those same technologies start showing themselves in things that we see every day. So I think that's why it resonates with me so much because I feel that we're kind of mired in some of that old structure, uh, political wrangling and, and For sure. old ways of thinking about difference. Yeah. Like just the last thing that I found super exciting or interesting in what Will said was I think so often we approach the question of the relationship between research and teaching from the assumption that it's like your research that you're trying to bring into the classroom and not necessarily the other way around. So really thinking about how your practice as a teacher influences the research that you're already doing. And I mean that beyond like, you know, writing papers about pedagogy or writing papers about your experience in the classroom, but that there's like, you know, an integration sort of between the various things that we're doing as university workers and that you know, there's like this sort of, I think, assumption that the most important one or the foundation of the other two is the research. And I think there's something really helpful about being open and vulnerable to learning something from your students that has impacts on your research rather than the other way around, like trying to teach your students whatever you've learned from your research. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Well, thanks everyone for listening. This has been a great conversation with Will Paris and we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us. Pedagogies for Peace, Intersectional and Decolonial Teaching was made possible by the support of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. The music is by David Hazardous, and the podcast is produced and distributed by Hannah Heinzaker. You can find all the episodes of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.